This is Sports Best, the best of sports on the Believe Podcast Network, where we believe in the best of sports. Each and every week, we cut out the worst and give you the best. I'm Andrew Keller, and that's Larry Olson. Larry, can you tell the folks where they can find us if they want to? Well, well, Andrew, I would first start with our TikTok account, which I've been bragging to everybody and saying is just delicious. But mm-hmm. you can also find us on the reposteds at the Facebooks, at the Twitters, at the Instagrams, all over where all of your social medias are. Mm-hmm. Make sure you make it all plural, though. Facebooks, oh, okay. The Facebooks, yes. Uh-huh. Andrew, this is so exciting. You know, we've been going through the uh, KBO season. You know, when we mm-hmm. first started this podcast, we were like, hey, how do we uh, get real sports into our show? Well, we haven't fallen KBO. We had Dan Kurtz last week on of MyKBO.net. I'm sure you learned a lot about the Korean baseball organization. Yeah, I, I love it. I, I want to go to Korea and watch a game. It seems like just a huge party. My brother lived in Japan for a while, and I think the Japanese baseball is similar, like the, the music. And there was a game called Baseball Stars on Nintendo that had the oh. best music. And he said it was they played the same stuff at the games in, in <laughs> Japan, which I thought was really cool. But right. KBO, this KBO thing's taken on a life of its own. I didn't think we'd still be talking about it today. But can you give me an update on how my LG Twins are doing? I can, but let's start with the team at the top. That would be the NC Dinos, mm. a 25 and 8. They are in first place. Tied for second place, Keller, would be a team I like to call the Kansas City Royals of the KBO. The LG Twins, they are at 21 and 12. That, of course, your team. My team, the New York Yankees of the KBO. The Kia Tigers are in fifth place at, 19, at 18 and 6. So we had a gentleman's wager on whose team would finish with a higher record. What was the wager? That was a man back rub, and I oh, am ready. Man rub. Man rub. Do I have to use uh, some lotions and solves or just a, just a straight dry rub? No, coconut oil. <laughs> All right. So the big baseball story this week, Andrew, I don't know if you were following along, was the draft. They had the baseball draft this week. Mm-hmm. And the number one pick was, I just love this name, Spencer Torkelson. <laughs> Isn't that a great name? Torkelson. That's a great name. Yeah. He was taken numero uno by the Detroit Tigers. Uh, He's 20 years old. He grew up in the Bay Area before heading to Arizona State, where he turned into a masher. He led the Pac-12 in home runs as a freshman and sophomore. He becomes the first college first baseman and the first right-handed hitting first baseman ever selected first in the draft. It's funny, though. I was, you know, once again, no live sports, so I had to watch this thing. Mm Mm-hmm. The Tigers announced him as a third baseman. <laughs> so he's a first baseman, and they immediately said, and third baseman. And so everybody's like, what's going on? They're going to immediately move him from first base to third base when he gets to the Detroit Tigers. So did whoever read it? Was there like a, a mix-up like the Oscars when uh, Moonlight won? Did they just read the card wrong? No, no. He, he's he's going to be a third. Like, he is a first baseman, but the Detroit Tigers are going to move uh, him to third base. To third base, so okay. He's he's technically now a third baseman. But here's the funny thing. I don't know if you've been following this. They're, they're getting rid of the minor leagues. Like, there is no minor leagues because, A, because of COVID, and, B, because mm-hmm. they're, they're not making any money. So it's going to be interesting to see where people that got drafted this week will actually end up playing. I think also it's going to be interesting because I, think, I feel like baseball draft was always the least followed because you get drafted, and then I don't think people really go straight to the show or the, or the majors. So – now I guess the draft is going to have more importance because they're actually going to be drafting people that are going to go on the teams immediately. And, you know, also, too, the draft usually has like 400 rounds. They, mm. they closed that only to five rounds this year. So 
there's going to be a lot less people. I mean, more people that are going to have to, you know, somehow find teams, I guess, magically rather than being drafted. Yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine what it would be like to, to get drafted. I mean, that's got to be exhilarating just to hear your name. Was it, was he expected to go first? Was it a surprise? He was really close, but once again, like I said, uh, first basemen aren't typically drafted top, by the way, your yeah. birds are off the hook. Um, but yeah. so this is great. I'm glad you asked me. It's Torkelson told ESPN this um, on being the top overall pick. I told my dad, you can punch me in the face right now. I didn't think I'd feel it. It was just the biggest adrenaline rush and happiest moment in my life to this date. It's unreal. I, you know, we, we talked about the draft and the families and the Zoom calls. It was so much fun to see these kids get drafted and share the moments with their parents. I mean, I, I, got, I was crying and it wasn't my kid. Sorry, I shut my window. <laughs> I, I was crying and yeah. it wasn't even um, my kid who was getting drafted. Imagine the pride you would have as a dad if your kid got drafted by a, a baseball team. So awesome. That's amazing. I think that's kind of an interesting take that <clears throat> he had so much adrenaline that he, he said someone could punch him in the face. I mean, maybe uh, the UFC fighters could take take a page out of that book. I don't know if you heard the uh, UFC Fight Island is uh, – they finally announced what that means. Back in April, the UFC announced that with all the COVID shutdowns, they were just going to open up a Fight Island and have everybody go there. So, wait a minute. I thought this was a mythical place. This is You're telling me this is the real thing. Yeah. So, apparently, it's in the UAE, uh, this man-made island called Yas Island. Or yes, yes, Yas um, it's this man-made island that's about 10 square miles, and they announced that UFC 251 is going to be there, and they're going to have a few other things. And I think basically the reason they're doing this is the UAE has the least amount of restrictions on, on people traveling internationally there, and so they want to have the least amount of restrictions on getting people to the fight. So they're just going to fly people in all over the world and then just let them go at it and bleed all over and there'll be no rules regarding any of this. <laughs> no, they're going to have, I think right now they're saying the testing is you, you get everyone that flies in to Dubai or to the UAE gets tested. And so people are going to be tested their last fight. Someone got scrapped from the card because he tested positive. So it's not like they're willy nilly going after it. There's not going to be fans in the stadium or, or the arena. Something that I think is crazy is because they don't have fans, they're going to adjust it to get more pay-per-view viewership. So they're eight hours ahead. And so I think it's eight hours. The prelims are going to start at 2 a.m. local time. And the main card fight starts at 6 a.m. local time. So it can be viewed in the U.S. I don't know if 6 a.m. is good fighting time. Uh, that is interesting, but they are on an island, Andrew. I mean, who knows? You know, <laughs> their time ceases to exist. You know, that's what I think yeah. about on it. Yeah, time just melts away when you're on an, you're on island time, I guess. You're on I, island time. I always thought island time meant that you were just late to everything, but maybe it just means you six a.m.s fighting time. That is an interesting idea of having to like recalibrate your brain if you're a boxer, because don't you know boxing or or whatever the UFC normally goes on at night, right? They're fighting at night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I don't. I guess you would show up early and just train as if you're. That was your time. Maybe you just never get off uh, U.S. Eastern time. And for those stakes, it's you're going to do whatever it takes. I guess you get up and have a cup of coffee, then you go beat someone's brains in. Yes, um, I like that idea. 
but people people say about this like you know mar- martial arts and boxing whatever like oh this is horrible it's a bad sport but here's the thing about it whether you like it or not there's o- there's obviously a demand for it that's why they're doing it yeah there's definitely a demand for it it's i've heard a theory that people are more into it now because you have less danger in your life and so you want to see more extreme stuff so like 100 years ago when you had to go f- hunt your own food like there was danger of you getting killed now that we're just like sitting in front of our computers and doing whatever we need to be stimulated have that rush and i think that's the draw to uh, ufc I, I like that juxtaposition like you're thinking you're trying to go catch your dinner but instead you become some animal's dinner mm-hmm. yeah you're watch <laughs> I don't even know where to start with this next story, Andrew. You know, I'm not a huge NASCAR fan, but I sort of understand that NASCAR has its roots in the Deep South with bootlegging mm-hmm. and uh, moonshine, moonshine, driving fast cars. To get, I've, I've seen Smokey and the Bandit, so I know exactly what's going on. Have you yeah. seen all the Smokey and the Bandit movies, by the way? Uh, yeah, it's been a while, but I've seen them. Okay. And uh, I, I watched the Dukes of Hazard in their Confederate car. So I sort of mm-hmm. understand where NASCAR gets its kind of Confederate roots. But um, I don't know if you've been paying attention to the news, Andrew, but there's um, a, a racial awareness reckoning going on in our country. Yeah. And okay. so NASCAR's trying to have a figure out what they're going to do with the Confederate flags that sometimes show up at their races and some of the image problems that they've had. So this week they said they are going to ban confederate flags from going to any events or races and this is predominantly because one of their drivers is a black guy named bubba wallace and he wears a black lives matters shirt under however you want to use it with his uniform race day maybe before he gets into his car puts his uniform he wears that shirt and so nascar's having this big reckoning as to their image and not everybody's happy about that andrew i mean i can imagine people in the south not being happy about that but it seems like that that seems to be the direction we're going in. And it's an interesting idea of like, should they be playing to their base on allowing Confederate flags because those are the people to watch, or should they be trying to expand their base and not having Confederate flags there? Yeah. I don't know if it's playing to their base by allowing it. I, I think it's playing to the vocal minority of their base is, is mm. my guess on what that is. The people that want to keep those flags are, are the ones that are the loudest, but I don't know. I grew up in, some would consider the South. Texas is its own thing, but <laughs> I, I understand that that mindset. And I don't think the majority of the South wants to be flying the Confederate flag. I think they have some loud fans that do. And uh, they're moving away from that image. And I think that's uh, a positive step. Now, is it there? I think you, I know you sent me a Texas. There's like a driver that's going to retire because of this new law. Yeah, he was on the the truck series, and I mean, he wasn't much of a, I think no one would have ever known his name if he didn't do this, but he's basically saying, uh, I'm not going to drive for someone that doesn't let me express my, or fly my flag, which, I mean, it's not really, it's just a silly move to make, I I guess, I don't know what he's trying to do, but uh, NASCAR says, thank you for your service, and moves on. What's his name? What the Cicerelli or there's it's like a yeah. We would never have known his name if he didn't take this stand, and we probably will never hear from him again. Right. Yeah, Ray Cicerelli. I, I think 
I don't think I'll remember that name later tomorrow, but uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're taking steps, all the, all the different leagues, the NFL, uh, Roger Goodell put out his statement, the U S soccer announced they're going to repeal a policy that they put in uh, earlier to, they used to require people to stand during the national anthem. So I guess the U S board of directors voted uh, 604 to one, which requires their players to stand during the national anthem. They repealed that. Originally, they put that policy in place when Megan Raponi took a knee during the national anthem in close proximity to when Colin Kaepernick was in the news about that in solidarity. I think this is great that they're doing that. I want to know who the one voter is. That's like, that's just reading that, that one stood out to me. I, I, I do at this point need to tell you that my daughter would karate chop you right into the nether regions because you said Megan Raponi. Megan Rapino. Megan Rapino, yeah. That's what <laughs> she I would she would go nut nuts wild. Um <laughs> she she was the one that started all this. She started kneeling like I mean, it's one thing to do it like in an NFL game. I get that, but like if you're playing for our country in another country and then you kneel, that's that seems like it's a bigger deal. I guess so. But I think you're getting international attention anyway. I, I feel like anytime you're you're doing that it carries the same weight maybe it doesn't i don't know it may change my mind but i think doing it in los angeles or doing it in shanghai i think it i think it means the same thing you know it's just so interesting how quickly this changes right like they yeah. told her you can't do this and now they're saying you can it's like amazing what uh impact the protest and society's going through there where they're just like okay now you can do it mm-hmm. i think the cynical part of me is like it's it's a better it's a good business decision. I want to I want to have the benefit of the doubt that people are making these decisions because I think they're the right thing to do socially. But the cynical part of me thinks that some of this stuff is happening because it's a good business decision. You know, and it's it's really going to be interesting to see what the NFL does, right? Because they had that big you couldn't do anything, and then you could, and mm-hmm. so now the Roger Goodell came out. The commissioner was like we're sorry for not getting behind racial injustice in the past. And so it's going to be really interesting to see if they come up with a way to have a uniform policy about something when the NFL season starts up. Yeah. I mean, I I was reading earlier that Adrian Peterson has outwardly said he's without a doubt, quote, without a doubt going to kneel during all the national anthems. So the NFL is definitely going to have to address this. I think that they're going to repeal. I don't, was it ever an actual rule that they couldn't kneel or was it frowned upon? Everyone kind of handled it differently. I think you're right. I, yeah, I, I, mm, that's a good question. We'll have to, we'll have to Google that. Moving on to a lighter topic, Andrew. I mean, we've all probably fished, but you ever go like on a boat out in the ocean and like try to catch big fish? Yeah. What's the biggest, (laughs) what's the biggest fish you've ever caught? I don't know. Probably 20 pounds. You caught a 20 pound. I caught a fish this big. You caught a 20-pound fish. I think so, yeah. I caught a shark when I was fishing what? in Myrtle Beach. Yeah. What? Mm-hmm. You caught a – who catches a shark? I, I, I don't know. I think it's great. I have a friend, uh, Bobby. You met him. He's got a podcast called Could Be the Move, and he, he put out this move that I think is hilarious. Is you, you hook a fish, and you, you, give it, you give it the reel to another man and have him reel it in. It's the biggest slap in the face. Be like, hey, here you go, buddy. Really? <laughs> hey, you know what? Let's go on a fishing boat and do that. <laughs> it's like you. You always give your um, foul a balls, ball. you catch your yeah. games to kids. Yeah. Well, the next one's going to you. 
but I like this idea. Like you just give it to a grown man. Hey, could you yeah. reel, reel my fish in? <laughs> hey buddy, I know you're not having a good time here. Reel us in. That'll be fun for you. Just, I just need to say this in this past week, I've learned that you've now caught a 20 pound fish and that you started driving at 15. It's been a big week for me. <laughs> Thank you. It's been a big week for me. <laughs> I have more gems hidden for you later. <laughs> okay. Back to the topic at hand. There's a, um, a big fish tournament in our country. I didn't know this. It's, mm the big rock blue marlin tournament it's held off the coast of north carolina and we would have never heard about the big block big rock blue mountain marlin tournament off the north carolina if not yes salsa shall see salsa by the shore if not for the fact that michael jordan yes the legendary basketball player caught a really big fish at the big rock blue marlin tournament wow. he caught a 442 pound blue marlin whoa Did, was that the winner that was not the winner that was not the winner <laughs> what he, he didn't even get in the top three with his 442 pound blue marlin wow. the uh as, at the time of this uh story came out the top weighing fish was 494 pounds hmm. it seems like anything that jordan does he he steals he steals a spotlight like imagine you win that competition and all the news coverage goes to someone that didn't place you like know when he what? played for the White Sox, he was getting all this attention. How great would it have been, Andrew, if Michael Jordan is reeling this fish in and he gives it to the guy standing next to him? <laughs> How good would that be? Uh, could be the move, <laughs> man. I love that. He just, everything he does, he wins at, right? He's a, all he does is win, 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 and win. Isn't that, <laughs> that's, I don't know. That's how it goes, yeah. I saw that that's on TikTok. Um, have you, do you know how these, comp like, is that, are they using sonar like how are they catching these fish i feel like with technology now andrew is it is that difficult i'm not the guy who caught a 20 pound fish once i'm just a mere mortal okay well i'm an angler just by hobby <laughs> Today, we're joined by author Andrew Downey. He's a correspondent for Reuters covering sports. He spent much of his time covering South American soccer or football and released a book a few years ago called Dr. Socrates, Footballer, Philosopher, and Legend. It's a biography of the iconic Brazilian captain of the 1982 World Cup team. You guys can order that on Amazon. He also has a book coming up this fall called The Greatest Show on Earth, Mexico, 1970. The book is going to tell a story of the player's who played in the most iconic World Cup ever. It's going to feature interviews with dozens of participants of Mexico 70. Thank you so much for joining us today, Andrew. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, so this is the 50th anniversary of that World Cup. Can you maybe just give us a quick overview of like why, you, why it was so iconic? Yeah, there are many reasons why this was the most iconic World Cup. And the first, uh, the first and foremost is about the football. It was won by Brazil. Brazil beating Italy in the final. They became the first team to win the Jorime trophy three times. And so they got to keep that trophy. Um, mm. That team is widely considered to be one of the greatest, if not the greatest football team of all time. Uh, primarily or largely because it had Pelé playing at his pomp. That he was really, you know, at his greatest in, in, in the 1970 team. Um, so you had the greatest team, you had the greatest player. Uh, at the same time, you had off the field, you had 
the World Cup at that point, football at that point in general, it was right on that cusp between uh, changing from being a purely a pure sport to being a, a a sport that was heavily run by business or was becoming starting to be run by business. Um, so the 1970 World Cup, it didn't really have any, you know, there was no not a lot of sponsors, almost no sponsors. You know, the shirts didn't, they weren't made by Adidas or Nike or Puma or anything like that. And um, four years later, all that started to change. Um, so that was one thing. It was in the memory, it was seared into the memory of many people, this World Cup, because it was the first World Cup to be broadcast live around the world in color, which doesn't mean that everybody got it on their televisions in color because most people didn't have color televisions at that point. Most of the world didn't have color TV. But when you look back and you see the footage now, the footage is in color. And that really made an enormous difference to people's memory because you had this mm. gorgeous, sunny, bright, golden Mexican World Cup uh, with this sensational football being played and all these things went in together uh, to make it so iconic. There was a couple of just smaller things that also made it different and fresh and, 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 and memorable. It was the first World Cup to have its own ball. It was the famous Telstar ball, that which, which was... You know, the, the white ball with the black panels, the, the, the pentagons. Uh, it was the first World Cup to have yellow cards and red cards. So that was the that was another thing that was, was all memorable. And I think all these factors together, they make it uh, uh, the most iconic World Cup of all time. Andrew, and the other thing, too, is that it was the first World Cup staged in North America. Did it have an influence, that 1970 World Cup, on America, like our relation to soccer? Um, maybe further down the line, but I don't think so much at that point because at that point, 1970 soccer, you know, it really, it really was only getting started in the U.S. Uh, and Mexico, of course, you know, football had always been the big sport. It was always, uh, you know, the sport of the masses there. But it was only in the it was only in the 1960s that America started to get your you know your league started to really get up and going. A few years after 1970, I mean, you could argue that you know, Pele, you know coming to North America, being such a huge star in this first World Cup that was televised, you could argue that that would played into him moving to New York Cosmos a few years later. It was, it was, you could argue that North America was starting to, to wake up a little bit to soccer. It, that, that's, a, that's a very valid argument. So I think you specifically focus, or you know a lot about Brazilian football. Did, did that third make a huge difference on, on the sport in Brazil? Or do you think no matter what happened, they would still have the same love for the game? Well, I mean, Brazil had won the World Cup twice before. They had won it in 1958 and 1962. And they went in 1966 to England and they were basically kicked out of the tournament. It was a very rough tournament. Uh, and so it was, the, it was the first time and still the only time that Brazil had been eliminated in the first round of the World Cup. So that really stung them and they really wanted to come back and they really wanted to make an impact. And especially Pelé because he had, he had won the World Cup in, at age 17 in 1958. He'd won it again four years later where he only played the first two games before being, being forced out injured. And then that incident in 1966 where, you know, he was injured very early. He, he kind of played but didn't play because he, he just wasn't in, 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 in great form uh, or in great physical form. Uh, and so Pele knew that this would be his last World Cup. So he really, you know, he told his, he told the other players and everyone knew that uh, he wanted to win this because he wanted to go out when he was on top. And I think he was one of the, you know, the factors that, that, that really forced his, his teammates into giving their all. And it, he was a real, 
uh, motivation for, for Brazil in, in 1970. You know, we got to talk Brazil in a second, but let's just stick on Pele for a second. You know, my kids follow soccer, you know, and they still know the name Pele. Why has is Pele now a is Pele now a myth, or was he really that good? Both. He is a myth because he was so good. He was obviously what the the athlete of the century, uh, the twentieth century, ahead of people like Muhammad Ali. He was. The player who did it all. He's the the only man to win the World Cup, only player to win the World Cup three times. Um, he of course took Santos, uh, a small time club in Brazil in Sao Paulo State, to to become the greatest team in the world for many years, which is a remarkable feat given the size of the, the city and the, and the size of the club. Um, and then he went on to New York Cosmos in his later years, and he you know he really gave this huge you know impulse to to football in, in North America. And ever since then, you know, Pele has always been, you know, you talk to anybody, anybody over the age of about 30, 35, even 40, who the greatest player in the world is, and they'll all say Pele, because they all remember him. The younger generation today, you know, will, are likely to choose something like Messi, and there's, there's always an argument from Maradona. Boo! <laughs> is that a boo for Messi or a boo for who? Uh, I thought you were going to say Ronaldo. That's why I booed. <laughs> okay. No, I, I mean, not, not to me. I don't think Ronaldo is quite up there with, with uh, Messi. But anyway, uh, uh, you know, Pelé is, 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 is you know, widely held to be the greatest footballer of all time, if not one of the top two greatest footballers of all time. But that is a discussion that we could have another day and we could have that discussion for hours and hours and hours. Who's better, Pelé or Messi? Well, let's just, just to follow up on that, so, you know, I'm a casual soccer football fan, and every four years I break out the U.S. jersey and I get excited about the World Cup, except when we don't make it. Uh, but just talk about the difference between, like, being a fan of the U.S. soccer team and Brazil soccer. I mean, it's almost religion there, right, in Brazil? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously, it's the sport of the masses. It's the sport that everybody watches. You know, most people have a team. It's, it's, the thing about Brazilian football is that, as somebody once said, you know, Brazilian football is like Tibetan monk. I mean, the two words just go together, you know, <laughs> you know perfectly. It's when you think of Brazil, you, know, you think of football. And so the, the world has come to know Brazil through its football players. You know, 1958, 1962, you know, Brazil wasn't really very well known in the world. It was a big country, but, you know, it just wasn't very well known. And when Brazil won two World Cups in a row and then the third one in 1970 with the whole world watching on television, that really gave Brazil a visibility that it never had before. And, and I think I think Brazil owes a lot to football and football owes a lot to Brazil. You said when people think of Brazil, they think of football. When I think of Brazil, I do not think of a Scottish correspondent. Um, <laughs> how did you end up living in Brazil and covering football down in South America? I... I have. I came to Brazil roundabout way. I left Scotland in 1990. I, I I was I was working. I quit my job, and the first thing I did is I went to see Scotland in the World Cup in Italy. So <laughs> I spent three four weeks in Italy watching the Scotland games and watching as many games as I could. And then I I got a flight over to the U.S. and I went all the way overland across the U.S. down to the border in Arizona, and from there I went down, further down to Mexico, hitchhiked down to Mexico City. And I got a job as a journalist at the local English language newspaper in Mexico City. And from there, I, I quickly became a, an editor and then a, a writer. And then I became a foreign correspondent. I went to, to spend two years in Haiti in 1993 and 1994. 
And then from there, I became a correspondent. I, I spent a few more years in Mexico, and then I arrived in Brazil in 1999. I had always wanted to live in Brazil. I had always wanted to see Rio. That was one of my uh, one of my dreams in life. And I, I moved to Rio in 1999 to be a, a correspondent for Time Magazine, which I did. And then around 2012, I became uh, I became a correspondent, a sports correspondent for Reuters because the World Cup was going to be held in Brazil in 2014, and the Olympics would, would be held in Rio in 2016. And they were mm. looking for somebody to specialize uh, in, in sports writing, and that was right up my street. You know, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the fact that the captain of the Scottish soccer team plays currently on the greatest soccer team in the entire universe, the Liverpool Football Club. And so I'm assuming that you're a big Reds fan at this particular point. Well, when you said he played for the greatest football club of all time, I thought you were going to say Hibernian, which is uh, a uh-huh. team from Edinburgh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but I will accept, I will accept the Liverpool are a very great club, great history. And Andy, you know, Andy Robertson, he's a superb player. You know, he played for Queen's Park, which is, you know, an amateur team in in, in Scotland. It's, it's kind of an equivalent to the Corinthians casuals in England for many years, or at least it was. <laughs> Uh, he got his start there. He went to Dundee United and then went down to England. So, I mean, you know, a lot of people in, in, in Scotland remember him just getting his start. And, you know, some of the things he's done at Liverpool the last few years have just been phenomenal. Him on one side and, you know, Trent Alexander-Arnold on the other side. They've, they've, really, they've really, you know, done amazing things with Liverpool. You know, just before you go, I think we couldn't let a discussion about soccer go without saying Lionel Messi, Argentina, possibly you could make the argument the greatest athlete of our generation but he hasn't led his team, Argentina, to a World Cup title. Do you think when all is said and done, he'll be known? How, how, what will his legacy be, Lionel Messi? Yeah, it's a good question, and, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a question that's going to go on forever uh, because he has not won the World Cup, and unless he does win the World Cup, or even if he wins you know, the Copa America with Argentina, he hasn't won a title with Argentina. Uh, Argentina haven't won a, a title for, since the 1990s, so it's been you know, almost 30 years. And that is a, a, a big kind of asterisk at the side of Messi's career. You cannot argue you know, what he's done with Barcelona. You know, you cannot argue that he has turned on the style. He has played, you know, some of the most incredible football we have ever seen on an almost weekly basis. And, and for that reason, he he is mentioned up there as, as one of the greatest of all time. But as you say, his international record with Argentina has left one thing. It's not just that he hasn't won the title. At the World Cup, Messi has never scored a goal in knockout play. And hmm. that just leaves this big question mark over 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 Messi. And I always, when, when people always, you know, people will ask me and there's this big discussion about who's better, Messi or Pele. You know, and I and, and one way of, of resolving this argument is saying that Messi was undoubtedly the greatest club player of all time. You know, I'm not sure I 100% agree with that, but it's a very, very valid argument. The other side to that is, is you say Pele is the greatest player of all time because he not only did what Messi did with Santos, you know, he won, you know, the Copa Libertadores twice, he won the Liber- he won the World Club Championship twice, um, he won all these titles, he won many, 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 many titles with with Santos, and this was in an age when Santos did not participate in the Copa Libertadores, which is the South America's equivalent of the Champions League. Santos didn't take part in this every every month because it was they made more money from participating in friendlies because Pele was such a big draw. Uh, the, they were angry that some of the Uruguayan and the Argentine clubs would kick them off the field and would use these dirty tactics. So they said, we're not playing the Libertadores. So Santos didn't play in these titles in these competitions every year, and yet Pele would still... He was still the greatest. He was still recognized as the greatest. 
and yet Pele did what he did with Santos and he did it with Brazil. He won the World Cup three times, which has never been done. And I think that's the fundamental difference is that, you know, on an international level, Pele, he took Brazil to all those titles. And no matter how great Messi is, you know, you can also argue that he never had the great players around him. And there is some truth to that. But I think Pele dragged Brazil to, to, to heights that Messi has never come close to dragging Argentina to. Before we get you out of here, I'd love to hear your speculation on, on the future of football without fans or for the immediate future. How do you see that impacting the game, in your opinion? I mean, do you, I mean, you guys will be presumably watching some of the football that started up again. I mean, Wait a minute, you, you mean, should I be watching Liverpool clinch the Premier League Championship without fans? <laughs> yes, I will be doing it. Yeah. Are you watching the Bundesliga? Are you going to be watching La Liga when it starts? Are you watching... You know, the league in Costa Rica with no fans? Are you watching the league in Denmark with no fans? I would do it if my kids would let me, but they won't. I can only watch Liverpool. Right. You know, it's weird. It's, it's definitely weird. You know, I think the big difference in the in, with, with leagues like La Liga, the Bundesliga, and, and, and you know, the English Premier League, I think, they're just, I think they're just such big commercial enterprises. You know, these clubs are making so much money. The television companies have so much money invested in it that there was this extra impetus to get the league started again. Um, mm-hmm. I have to say that, you know, when I watch it, it's it's very weird. But you see, I'm not a huge fan of English football. I, I'm, I'm a, I, 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 watch, I like to watch Hibs. I like to watch Scottish football. Uh, I come from a time when, uh, you know, it was only 25 years ago that uh, Scottish teams could take on English teams in the, in the European Cup and beat them uh, because Scottish football was as good as English football. And, you know, football has come in and or the money has come in, you know, first of all, from Sky at the beginning of the 1990s and then from you know, all these, te- you know, these television deals, et cetera, and all these commercial deals. And it's changed football, you know, it's, it's changed football for me for the worst. So I don't really have as much of a, an interest uh, in watching these leagues as, as I do my own team, who, which I have a, a, a real you know, lifetime connection to. We just want to say thank you one more time to author Andrew Downey for joining us today. Check out his book on Amazon, Dr. Socrates. Also, keep an eye out this fall for his new book that's coming out, The Greatest Show on Earth, Mexico 70. Thank you again so much, Andrew. Thank you.